The Kinky Cocktail Hour is brought to you by Motor Bunny, the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator that offers fabulous creative sexual experiences. We use it and it rotates, it vibrates, and it delivers mind-blowing orgasms. Enjoy Motor Bunny as your favorite sex toy. When you order the Motor Bunny, multiple attachments are included along with the link controller, which allows wireless control from anywhere. Motor Bunny is the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator on earth. Use the link in the show notes and spice up your sex life with a Motor Bunny. You're listening to Kinky Cocktail Hour a conversation between adults about sex-forward relationships, kinky lifestyles, and frank communication. If you're under 18, please stop listening and visit scarletteen.com. I'm Lady Petra, and my pronouns are she, hers, and we. I'm Safa Master, and my pronouns are him, his, and we. And this is Kinky Cocktail Hour. Cheers! Cheers. Okay, what am I drinking today? You are drinking <laughs> a ginger daiquiri. Ginger daiquiri, okay, what's in that? So this is something I made up. You made it up. Off okay. a recipe I saw. So it's one and a half parts of our special Hawaiian rum. Okay. Three quarters of a part of ginger liqueur a quarter of a part of simple syrup and then half a part of lime juice wow shaken double strained syrup with candied ginger i love the candy ginger yeah never had it you get to try it you're my guinea pig <laughs> well let's just tell people you're not drinking because you're not feeling well yeah i'm so not i have a cold why. oh that's very respectable good yeah that's good rum you know it's, it it's is, such it's, good rum is it is it sweet enough yeah it's definitely it's sweet not enough. tart it too tart it's tart it's supposed to be like a daiquiri. Daiquiris mm-hmm. are tart, mm-hmm. but it's not too tart, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why when I add the ginger liqueur, because it asked for ginger simple syrup only. Right. I wanted the ginger liqueur in there. Yeah. And so then I added a little bit of the simple syrup to get the sweetness up. Yeah, no, I think it's balanced. It's good. definitely, Excellent. you can definitely taste the ginger. You can definitely taste the rum. You definitely taste the lime oh, juice. Oh, good. You can taste them all. Good. Mm. Good. And, you know, it doesn't taste very alcoholic. So this is a drink that will mess you up. Yeah, I think it'll be good. I thought it was good. Something lime-based tonight because I'm going to have a proposition for dinner. So, Oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> the Kinky Cocktail Hour is brought to you by Slub USA, the world's strongest, most powerful male masturbator. Visit Slub USA at Slub, S-L-U-B-B, USA.com. Today's conversation is brought to you by WeMinder, a behavior chart app for kinky couples like us. Learn more at WeMinder.app. Excited to have Dome Jez on the conversation today. You know, she's a longtime femme leather practitioner and teacher in the kink space, edge play, yeah. needle play, medical play. And as a registered nurse, we have some things to learn. So, yes, for sure. So, Jez, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. I feel honored to be on your show. So thank you so much. <laughs> well, actually, we're honored that you're here. And we always begin our show by inviting you to share your journey in sexuality. So Dome Jez, tell us about how you discovered yourself as a sexual creature and how that evolved into where you're now 
teaching people how to stick each other with needles. <laughs> wow. Well, let's see. I'll try to make this very brief. I grew up in a really open environment. My parents, especially my mom, is very sexually liberated. We, myself and my sisters learned about sex at a very, very young age. We didn't have to learn it from school. And my mom was very upfront about it. So we learned proper names for our body parts. I mean, I can remember saying penis and vagina, I think when I was like four years old. So that was really nice. I actually, even though my parents will never say it, I do think I was, a, I grew up in a house of nudists or naturalists as they call them now, because we were always naked and it was not a shameful thing. So I learned to be very secure about my body and not be ashamed of my genitalia, not be ashamed of, you know, what was developing when I was a teenager. So I didn't have a lot of, of that kind of body shame. So that was really liberating. I knew about sex long before any of my school friends knew about sex. I was sexually active when I was, you know, pretty young. So I think that probably helped. And I discovered that I, from a very young age, that I really enjoyed sex and I really enjoyed orgasms and pleasure and pleasuring others. I didn't have to wait till I was, you know, older to discover that. So I, I just feel very lucky. And then, you know, I just kind of had this interesting, I guess, kink awakening when I was, I was working at a job in a hospital, <laughs> this, this terrible story. So, but anyway, I'm not going to say what hospital or what state or whatever, but anyway, I was working at this job at a hospital uh, when I was in nursing school. And one of the nurses who was a male nurse <laughs> actually approached me and this would be completely illegal. And I'm sure he, he would have been fired 20 different ways and probably in jail for this now, but many, many years ago, it wasn't a thing. So anyway, um, he approached me and just, we started talking about kinky things and he said, you know, I really, I'm getting this vibe from you that you're, you're like a dominant woman. And I, I feel like I would want to explore that with you. And I, I didn't really know what he meant. I was 20, I think I was maybe 21. Yes, I was 21 because I just started nursing school. And so he said, would it be okay if I took you to a place where we could explore that? And I wasn't naive, but I didn't exactly know what he was talking about. So I just went along with it because I was like, okay, this seems like fun, I guess. I wasn't attra attracted to him in that way, but I was intrigued. So he took me to a local dungeon that he uh, frequented and he used to, you know, um, basically rent out uh, doms for him for, to play with. And he rented out this room and we went into this room and I was in this really beautiful space. It was like all black and red and had a lot of leather in it. And the smell of leather being surrounded by leather absolutely excited me. I'd never been in a space like that before. So that was exciting. And then he, he got completely undressed and he said, I am consenting to have you do the things I'm telling you that I want in this space. And he got on his knees in front of me and he looked up at me and he told me these things and instantly it clicked for me. And I, I can't describe what it was that exactly clicked, but it clicked that this is this is what I wanted to do. Like I wanted somehow for this scenario and this feeling to be incorporated in my life at all times, at any time where I'm in a relationship or not or whatever, I need to have this 
this kinky space. So that night he taught me how to put in needles and I put a hundred needles in his penis that night. First time I've ever done that. And I put a hundred needles in. <laughs> so that was amazing. And I was so excited to be able to do that. And I couldn't believe that someone allowed me to do that to them. And, and that it was super consensual and that he wanted it and he loved it. So he actually got me a job at that place as a professional dom. I actually had to start as a professional sub first and work my way up, but I, I got the job and I worked myself up to being a professional dom. And that's kind of how I became a professional dominatrix. So I did that until the end of nursing school. And then when I graduated nursing school, I quit that job and just, you know, became a nurse. And I've been a nurse now for a very, very long time, <laughs> almost 30 years. But I've always been in the kink community and I've always incorporated my medical knowledge and my nursing knowledge into pretty much all of my kink practices. And that includes consent, boundaries. I mean, of course, you know, if someone's in trouble at the hospital and they can't talk, of course they can't consent. That's different. That's an emergency situation. So in any case, I just have sort of been in and out of the community. Like I said, I wanted to really be an educator because personally I've attended a lot of classes where I felt like, I mean, they were okay classes, but I felt like there wasn't a focus on safety. There wasn't really a focus of enthusiastic consent. I saw some things that I, I teach myself now that I would never do in these classes, uh, techniques that I would never do. I would do the, the, the task or I would do the skill, but I wouldn't do them in the way that the instructor that I was watching would do them. And I don't want to throw them any shade. It's just that I focus a lot on safety and consent and boundaries. And I didn't see a lot of that in these classes. So I kind of just decided I wanted to teach in my own style in the manner I felt was the safest with the lowest liability and the highest level of satisfaction and pleasure. And so that's kind of where we are today. I'm still stuck on a hundred needles in his penis on I the know. first go. <laughs> that's impressive. So I have some questions about that, but I wanted you to have a chance to talk about your interest in the leather community because you mentioned that you were in the leather community also. So how does that play for you in your experience as a domain? So the leather community is definitely how I identify. I identify as a, a queer leather femme. So technically, yes, I'm a lesbian, but I don't really describe myself as a lesbian. More, I'm, I feel more queer. And the leather part is just, for me, it's not just the actual leather pieces that I wear. It's a set of values that I carry with me. I guess in the regular vanilla community, I guess you would call them, you know, a set of morals or ethics and for me, the leather ethics that I have inside of me resonates. So an example would be, you know, absolute enthusiastic consent. In the vanilla community, yes, we talk about consent as in, I do not consent for you to, you know, sexually assault me or, you know, put your hands on me or whatever at work. But in the leather community, it's about enthusiastic consent. So that's a leather value that I hold. Another leather value that I have would be like respect for others. So, you know, walking into a dungeon space, respecting that there's a scene going on, giving a wide berth to the scene, things like that, that in the vanilla world, I don't know, people don't really think about things like personal space. I mean, yes, they do, especially now with COVID, but before, you know, they didn't really think about personal space. So I have, I just kind of like, 
it is a regular, I guess, set of morals and ethics, but it's, it's something about being in these leather kink spaces that resonates with me a little more. And it also opens my heart up to vulnerability. I think for me, leather makes me feel vulnerable and it allows me to have my play partners, my friends be vulnerable to me. It's hard to describe. I have a leather pack that I run in. So my partner is my daddy. We're in a DG or I guess traditionally would be a DS dynamic, but it's really a a daddy girl dynamic. And she is my partner. She's my love. And we have a lot of friends in the leather community. So I would say it's like an extended pack. Got it. Okay. You said something earlier that I'm curious about. You said you're lesbian, that you identify more as queer. So can you differentiate how that works exactly? Oh, this is always such a, a tough one because I don't, again, want to insult or throw shade at lesbians. So yes, technically I'm a lesbian. I do not sleep with men. I do not have a sexual attraction to men and, you know, nothing against men. I'm not a man hater. That's just like how, that's just how I am. I guess the thing about lesbians, when I when I think of lesbians or, or having been in lesbian spaces, I think the thing that, that kind of stands out the most is being here in Los Angeles and being in the lesbian community, there was just nothing out there for me, like in terms of attraction. So here's an example. There used to be a club here called Girl Bar. My partner and I were just talking about this the other day. So Girl Bar was a place that was really popular back in the late 90s and 2000s where all the lesbians would go and dance and meet and hook up and find girlfriends and U-Hauls and like go move in together. So the thing was, is that when I walked into those spaces, I know that I looked like those women that were in those spaces, but I I wasn't attracted to those women in those spaces because they were typically very feminine and I am very feminine, but I wasn't attracted to feminine women and I'm attracted to masculine of center folks. So I'm I'm attracted to women who identify as women or somewhere even maybe like more non-binary, but definitely more, you know, like definitely identifies as women who are masculine looking or who have like masculine and like male, female features in terms of like the way that they present themselves, like, like butches, that would be a prime example. And that wasn't really acceptable to be attracted to butches in the lesbian community. So I didn't really ever feel like lesbian hit home for me in that way. I also thought, to be honest, that community or that crowd was snobby. They didn't really like butches. They didn't like masculine of center women. They sort of like shunned them a little bit. And I didn't like that. Like I wanted to take all the butches and protect them because to present in that manner in a world that's very cruel already is very vulnerable. And so I saw a lot of hatred towards the masculine of center community. And so that kind of pulled me away from the lesbian community. And so when I heard the word queer and I, you know, a long time ago, queer was not a good word, but of course now it's being, you know, utilized and reframed in a very positive manner that hit home for me. I think I've identified as queer at least for 15 years now. And so I, if I have to label myself, I identify myself as queer first, leather second, lesbian third, because technically, yes, I am a lesbian, but that never, that doesn't ring true to my heart. And anyone else, anyone who identifies as queer, like, like I have sort of described can kind of like, they can, I'm sure they can resonate with some of 
that resonates with some of what I'm saying, because it's hard to describe why I, I go that direction, but I hope, I hope your listeners can understand that. <laughs> so that was probably the best explanation we've had yet yeah, on queer correct. because yeah. people just don't, they, they dance around it. And what I would say is, well, then you're not lesbian. What you are is queer. I mean, in my eyes, and it's okay to be queer. When I was really young, queer was always attached to males who were homosexual. And it was interesting to watch it evolve to where women started grabbing that label. But it's actually an orientation specific to you. And you don't fit in the lesbian one. You fit in the queer one. And it makes total sense yeah. to me. One thing that I do want to ask or kind of make a statement is like, What's neat is being attached to leather. Also, it seems the leather community does embrace the butch or, you know, females that are off male center, as you were saying. And so then my next question would be, do you guys ride bikes? <laughs> I, um, I do, actually. So <laughs> I have ridden motorcycles since I was, I think, like 29 years old. My first motorcycle was a cruiser. It was a Honda Ace 750. And then, then I started riding Harleys. And then I took a break for a while because... I was married to a woman who absolutely hated my motorcycle riding ways. And so I stopped riding for her and then we got divorced and then I started riding Italian sport bikes. And since probably 15 years ago, I've been riding Italian sport bikes since then. And I have a really interesting story about how I got into motorcycle riding. Well, I love it because I ride a bike too. I have a Yamaha V-Star 950 and I love it and I love riding it. And I am in a different spectrum, like you're talking about how you felt like you didn't fit in. I'm straight, you know, as much as I know at this point in my journey and that I never fit in with what the vanilla women thought was appropriate. You're supposed to be the bitch on the back and always ride in the back. And I was like, no, no, I want to ride in the front. I want to drive the thing, you know, and I race dirt bikes and those kinds of things. So it's refreshing to hear someone speak their truth and I can find common ground there because I felt so alone for so long. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel like me being on the back of a bike at, at this point in my life would be completely abnormal. It is just... I don't think I could honestly really even do it. I mean, maybe I could if I were stranded and someone picked me up, but being on the front and being in control of something that you have to have your, your absolute and utter focus on is beautiful. It shuts out all the other parts of my life, no matter what's going on in my head. I shut that off and I just focus on what's in front of me and what's beside me. And it's a really beautiful thing for you. That's a, a V-Star is a beautiful bike. Definitely. Well, and it's just like I was saying to Safra when you were speaking, you know, that presence that you have to be on the bike, that concentrated presence and, and that's hyper focus hyper focus generally for safety but the idea is you're still hyper focused because you don't have the enclosure of a car around you you're feeling all the elements the wind the sun the rain whatever have you and it replicates similarly to what you have to do when you're in kink you have to be present absolutely and also in nursing you also have to be very present very focused because someone's life is in your hands. So I do a lot of things that allow me to focus and shut everything else out. So whether I'm at work, riding a motorcycle, doing a, a scene, I'm always there. I'm always focused and it's really beautiful. I can just forget about everything else and focus on what's right in front of me. It's a great segue actually, Dome Jazz. Let's talk about needles and medical king. Okay. 
Well, I guess the first thing I should talk about is probably needle play. So I teach several classes in needle play. I teach uh, 101 levels, 201 and 301s. And the 301s are really for experienced players who want to level up their playing. I think there's a sort of a general distaste for this kind of kink and for a lot of people I would I shouldn't say distaste I, I guess I should say more like like oh god no I could never do that or I could never do that thing like yeah you go ahead and go on with your bad self but I don't I don't want to do it and I, I it's fear definitely and that's okay and for some people this does not turn them on but you know for me I don't like a lot of, I don't like play that keeps me away more than like a foot away from my bottom. So, you know, I am a switch and I don't bottom for needles because I actually don't like them (laughs) put in myself. But when I top needle play, I like to be, or I top any play, actually, I like to be very, very close to my bottom. I like a lot of intimate play. I like a lot of sensual play. And sometimes I feel like if you're throwing a flogger or even a whip, you can't always get very close. So I like to be very close and very personal to my bottom. And it's a great way to feel their energy coming off of them. So a typical needle play scene would be my bottom laying like maybe on a, you know, a massage table. And I do this crazy thing where I don't even know how I thought about this, but I have like medium length hair. And so I put some needles in their chest and I'll like sort of do a basket weave of needles over their chest. So maybe I'll put three needles in one little area of their chest, one right over the other. And then I'll put a little needle over a needle set on the other side. So three more needles on the other side of their chest. And then I'll get up on top of them and straddle them. And I will flip my hair onto those needles and it actually pulls on the needles. So they're getting like a sensual play of my soft hair and then pulling on the needles, which gives them some pain. And it really, people who have done that too, they love it. <laughs> they love that because they're they're seeing this visual of this tall blonde woman, you know, straddling them. And then they're getting this, this sensation of these pokey objects being put in their chest. And then my sensual, you know, the sensual feeling of like my hair running down their chest until it catches those needles. And then they're reminded, oh gosh, these needles are in my chest. So that's just a little example of would be a typical, very small scene. You know, I often think of needle play differently than the way you've described it so far. So the first thing you said was you put a hundred needles in somebody's penis. That's one, that was one experience. And now you just talked about like a little seen on somebody's chest with just a few needles. I've always thought about needle play as being more about building patterns with needles. And I'm interested in all these different variants of needle play. So there's two parts to this, right? There's the part of the top, putting the needles in to either make a pattern or set up a scene, but then there's the part of the bottom and what they experience. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are about how needle play influences, say, subspace, for example or top space. So like, what's that relationship like? Sure. So, you know, when I do needle play with someone requests needle play from me and they want me to top, of course, I, you know, always ask them, what is it that you're looking for? What's the, what's the vibe you're looking for? Are you looking for, you know, like a sadistic scene? Are you looking for a sensual scene? Are you looking for 
some kind of decorative needle play or maybe perhaps wings. I've done wings on someone where I put needles in their back and then put little glue, little feathers that come out of the hubs of the needles. So I give them wings. So I just kind of, you know, try to tap into what is it that they're looking for? How do they want to feel? What do they want to feel like before they go into the scene? What do they want to feel like during and after? And people who know me and know my style of needle play know that I'm a, like a sensual, I guess, sensual sadist, I guess. <laughs> I guess I would describe myself as that. I do enjoy putting needles in and I do enjoy watching people squirm, but that's not really why I do it. So I like to, like I said, be very close to them. So generally they'll ask me for like some kind of sensual pattern or just a sensual feeling. They want to feel excitement. They want to feel adrenaline. They want to feel endorphin rush and then they want to feel relaxed. So I take them on like a little mini journey, just, you know, 15 minutes, a half hour, hour, or whatever, whatever it is that they're looking for, you know, time-wise. And I take them on this little journey where I do a little breathing warm-up exercise with them just to get them to calm down because, you know, it's, it's scary to have needles, especially for someone who's hasn't done it. You know, they don't know what to expect. So it's a little scary for them. So I do a little like, timed breathing with them to get them to relax. I get them to breathe with me. So that helps get them into a really relaxed state. I have them get up onto a table or whatever, wherever they're going to be. And um, I start putting the needles in according to really what they're looking for. I mean, I do have a lot of creative liberties. They tell me just, you know, put them in how, you know, put needles in how you would want how you would want to see me have your needles. So I start putting them in just basically the way that I'm envisioning would look really beautiful on them or would make a big impact in terms of their adrenaline, endorphin rush. And I think the adrenaline comes from not knowing exactly what's going to happen and how much pain they're going to have. Then they realize, okay, this isn't so terrible. This actually feels really good. So that gives way to the endorphins. And the endorphins are just, you know, such a beautiful flood of serotonin and hormones that just open their hearts up. And then they're really enjoying that wave of endorphins. And I think that can help them get down into that subspace. Some people's subspace isn't like, I don't feel it all the time. So I check in a lot with them. Are you, you know, are you, are you where you want to be right now? If not, what can I do to get you there? And then some people don't want to be in a subspace at all. They want to just enjoy this on more of a surface level. And I'm cool with that too. And for me, every scene that I do, every single needle scene, every single time opens myself up to vulnerability. I'm giving a little piece of myself to them temporarily so they can feel my endorphin rush and my adrenaline rush and my vulnerability. So it's a really beautiful exchange and that keeps me in a really nice top space where I feel very focused and we're all sort of like loving each other in that moment. And then, you know, when I decide I'm going to start winding the scene down and ending the scene, I'll usually ask them to, you know, a question, how would you like me to take these needles out? Would you like me to take them out sadistically or nicely? (laughs) So sadistic removal of needles 
basically means I'm going to take the hub of the needle and I'm going to bend it really hard underneath their skin to create this, this point that's going to be pointing at their very delicate tissues inside of their skin. And I'm going to be scraping that skin all the way out. So as that needle is coming out, I'm going to scrape their skin and it's going to make them bleed. And a lot of people love blood too. So if you're a needle player, not all the time, but a lot of the time you also like blood. So sometimes they really like to see that happen. But if they just say, you know, I, I just, I just want to keep feeling this beautiful feeling I'm having, then I will just take them out very, very gently and dispose of them in the shark's container just nicely, quickly, and then make sure that there's not a lot of blood and, you know, give them some aftercare after. And I do a lot of other things besides just put the needles in and take them out. Like the hair thing I talked about, that's just one little thing. I do so many other things with needles. Like I have this thing I call the twine trick. So I put needles in a circular pattern, maybe like six needles in a circular pattern on someone's usually their chest. And I'll put like the same amount on the other side of the chest. And then I'll take a very thin piece of twine and I'll wrap the twine around each hub of each part of the needle at the hub of each one. So there's 12 wraps, six on one side, six on the other. And then I'll gather the twine together like in one hand and I'll pull. So it's kind of like a mini hook pull. Another thing that I do that was taught by a, a very good friend of mine to do this, which is so hot and so sexy, is when you really want to get close to your bottom, I will put two needles in their chest, one on one side, one on the other, and I will actually put two needles in myself, one on one side and one on the other. And I will get very, very close to them within two inches of them, of their chest. And I will take rubber bands and I will put a rubber band around my needles and attach it to their needle and I will pull and gently pull on them. So they're pulling back on me, then I'm pulling back on them. And so we're creating a little bit of a, a another kind of mini hook pull. So I can go from this crazy sadistic like needle scene to this very soft, gentle, connective, loving needle scene. It just really depends on the energy of the person I'm playing with and their desire to be very, very close to me or want something more sadistic. I always feel like, you know, when you see the artistic needle play, you know, it's, it, it is just that depending on the different colors of the hubs. Um, it's pretty artistic. And I always think, huh, is it like tattoo? Do you lay a stencil down? Because I can only imagine me not experiencing needle play and say, okay, I'm going to make this design. And oh shit, that one's wrong. I need artist. to start over, pull it out, <laughs> put poke it back in, you know, just <laughs> if you're doing something that's really intricate, do you use a stencil or some kind of pattern? So it's funny because I've been asked to do artistic needle scenes. And honestly, I don't do them because I have zero creativity when it comes to art. I, I, I have seen people use stencils and then put the you know, sort of like paint by numbers situation. And I've seen people do freehand beautiful patterns where my mouth drops open. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did they do that freehand? I don't do them because I'm a terrible artist. I just, I suck. I can barely draw stick figures. So I don't do those types of scenes. If they want something like that, I usually tell them I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely not the person for you. But you know, most of the time people don't come to me for that. They know this about me. 
I'm not going to do anything artistic on them. I'm more about the sensation and the feeling. And, you know, if you want a, a bunch of needles put in you, I will put them in you, but it might not look as pretty as you imagine. I appreciate that. And just the way you've shared it gives it a whole new perspective for me. I'm curious what gauge needles you're using. For someone who hasn't had needle play in the past and is just starting out, I will use 22s. I don't use 23s because they're really, really thin. So I use 22s for someone who just wants the experience of having a few needles put in them. And I find that that's enough. But I've used anywhere from 22s to 14 gauges. Um, 14s are really huge and they will make you bleed when you take them out and probably, and when you're putting them in too. And I've also used spinal needles. Um, spinal needles are two and a half inch needles. Uh, generally they're 21 or 22 gauge needles. So I've used those. They're absolutely huge. I've done third eye chakra piercings with spinal needles. They're just very long and they look really impressive when you put them in someone. So anyway, and I also for inch size, I'll use an inch to an inch and a half needles. But yeah, using anything less than a 22, it just, you know, bends too easily. And then I have a chance of hurting myself if the needle bends in my hand and I don't, I don't want to poke myself. Got it. And then do you poke just underneath the superficial layer of the skin or how deep do you go? So I will gauge the person's skin. So I just, before I start anything, I'll just take a look at it. I'll kind of play with it you know, maybe like tenderize it a little bit and see like literally how thick is their skin. But generally I'll try to go fairly surface level. I find that the more surface level you go, if you can see the needle actually like under the skin, like it's translucent, it actually hurts a lot more. This is what I've heard from so many people. I've done it to myself where I'm like, oh gosh, that really, that really hurts. And then I look down and the needle is barely under my skin. So I try to go you know, maybe just like a couple of millimeters under the skin. And especially if I'm doing a pattern where it's called like basket weaving, where I put one needle, uh, you know, in one direction, and then I will put another needle at a, you know, 45 degree direction, and I'm going over the original needle or under the original needle. So that original needle needs to be fairly close to the surface, but not you know, where you are actually seeing the translucency of the needle underneath the skin. So pretty surface level, but deep enough where you have almost the entire needle covered with tissue. And then that helps stabilize that original needle will help stabilize the rest of the pattern. Got it. Okay. And then when it comes to discarding needles, well, two things. So first of all, you're probably using a needle that you unpackage at the moment. And then when you discard it, you discard it in a sharps container. That's correct. So everything I do, of course, is always sterile. And my surfaces, I try to make as sterile as possible. You know, I will use sterile gloves if necessary. That's no problem either. And every needle is sterile and I unpackage it at the time that I'm putting the needles in. I don't unpackage the needle, put it down on a surface, and then you know, leave it and then put it in. So take the needle out and immediately it goes in the skin or wherever, you know, wherever it's going to go. And then afterwards, everything goes into a sharps container and there's no really not an, a, another acceptable place to put sharps except for a sharps container. 
Got it. And you mentioned cleaning the skin. Do you use alcohol or betadine? How do you prepare the skin? So if I'm going to do a lot of needles in a small area, I will use something called chlorhexidine. It's a surgical scrub. You can get it online anywhere, Etsy, eBay, Amazon. And it's just a scrub that you use. Once you use that, you cannot touch that area for two minutes. It needs a two minute dry time. And then after that, it's a sterile area. Now, if you're not using sterile gloves and you're touching the skin with regular gloves, then that area no longer is sterile. So it's not necessary to clean the skin with chlorhexidine. It's just something that I like to do as a practice. If I'm only going to put in a few needles, like let's say maybe 20 or less, I will just use alcohol swabs and that's, that's good enough. Alcohol doesn't really kill much, but it's a bacteriostatic. So it just sort of freezes whatever bacteria or virus or whatever is lingering on the skin. And it's a long enough freeze time where you can just put whatever you want in the skin and it, it will be fine. It's not going to get infected. So then with needle play, because I get aftercare after scene play when we have scenes like impact scenes, what kind of aftercare is needed with needle play? I'm sure it's different with experienced needle players versus beginning, but what do you have to do? Well, generally I have to wipe up the blood. <laughs> so that can get messy sometimes depending on what uh, needles I'm using and how many I put in and how I take them out. So generally it's a blood surface area cleanup. Make sure that any wounds that are still bleeding, I apply pressure until they stop bleeding. Generally, I don't love to have people standing up for needle scenes they tend to drop into whatever space that they're looking for very quickly. So I have them lying down. So I'll just keep them lying flat. I'll make sure all blood stops, all bleeding stops. And, you know, before the scene, I will ask the person, you know, what kind of aftercare would you like? What, what would feel good to you? And I will provide whatever aftercare that they need. So, you know, usually it's washing their skin, putting their clothes back on, making sure they're warm, making sure they're really hydrated and just giving them like cuddles or whatever it is that they asked for from the beginning. Cool. Okay, good. New conversation. Medical play. Tell us how medical play occurs for you. Uh, medical play is so fun. So, you know, I try not to intersect my work and my play too much because sometimes it can be really clinical, but I kind of can't help it. <laughs> so I just have to remember that the people that I'm playing with in a medical play scene actually want to be there. <laughs> so it can look anything like a scene where I'm giving someone a medical exam. I'm doing a nursing assessment where I come in, I ask them questions about their medical history. Um, usually I, it will be something, you know, very sexual, like, oh, I see you have a giant clitoris. Wow. That's really large. And that, that must hurt. So let's assess this situation and, you know, I'll have them like open their legs and then I'm, I, and I verify, wow, that is a very, very large clit. So I think we need to do something quickly to make sure that this clit is protected because it's just, it's so large. So at that point, I might do something really wild, like staple that person's vagina shut, <laughs> staple the whole labia shut, and I'll tuck the clitoris in and all the, all the lips and all the bits and everything hanging out. And then I will staple it shut. 
So it could look something like that, which I'm sure some of your audience might be cringing right now, but trust me, it looks super hot when it's done. Another scenario could be something like someone would want a urethral catheter put in them. They have this fantasy about not being allowed to expel urine from their bladder. So I will put a urethral catheter in them and then clamp the catheter so that there's no urine coming out of their bladder. And then maybe I'll make them drink a bunch of water. And so then they drink a bunch of water and now they really feel like, oh my God, I have to pee. So then I will, you know, take the clamp off the catheter. And then of course they fill the the catheter bag with a large amount of urine. Another scenario could be something like, you know, where I'm giving them like an enema and we're going to clean out their ass because they are going to go in for a colonoscopy. (laughs) This sounds very, very clinical. And I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners can also relate to colonoscopies, but it's it's different when it's done with a, you know, someone who's um, a player, like you're playing with these scenarios that normally would be absolutely horrific or sound nightmarish but you're you're playing with these kind of scenarios in a way that is very sexy or can be very power dynamic ish or a way for the top like myself to control you know the bottom's space and how they're navigating this world of like I can't believe I want you know staples in my you know on in my labia but I want them and I, I don't know why I want them, but I want them. And this is a safe place for me to explore this with a safe person. Got it. Really interesting. It's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious because you're a nurse. I'm curious about how you deal with just like day-to-day nursing if you've got this kind of evil nurse <laughs> domine <laughs> happening in your the back of your head, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's so different. You know, we we all navigate spaces differently, right? So when I'm at work, I'm very, very professional. Really, none of my coworkers or anyone knows this about me, but I will tell you this. I know uh, many other nurses who are kinky. There are so many kinky nurses. I don't know what it is about the nursing profession, whether it's just a way for us to have an outlet or what, but there's a lot of kinky nurses out there who you probably know are nurses, but maybe not kinky, or maybe you, you both do because you're in the kink world. But for me, you know, when I'm at work, I don't like when I'm starting an IV on someone, I don't think about, you know, Ooh, like, like I'm, I'm sensing some like toppy energy from myself. You know, I'm sensing some feelings of like, I want to dominate this person. I don't think along those terms. I'm very professional and I just do my job. I do it. I do it well. My patients love me. You know, I realized that at work, my patients are very vulnerable. They're there because they don't, they're there because they're sick and they don't want to be there. So that's how I sort of separate it. I'm at work. I'm taking care of my patients at the worst times of their life. And that's work. And then for play, they're there because they want to be there. They want to explore this part of themselves with someone who they know knows what they're doing. And I want to be there because I want to explore that too. I want to explore my like, you know, I wouldn't say my dominant side. I don't really have a dominant side, but more like a top side and sort of like play into these things that I guess, you know, vanilla society would consider kind of sick. You know, I'm, I'm fairly sure, you know, very few people in the vanilla world would be like, you know, thinking of something like a prep for a colonoscopy would be sexy, but it can be 
given the right scenario. And colonoscopies in themselves are absolutely not sexy. And I'm not saying that they are, but sort of playing around with, with the idea of, you know, I have to clean my asshole out for this, you know, hot nurse who's going to walk in and do a rectal exam to make sure I'm cleaned out for the doctor, for the colonoscopy. Like, like that can be really hot for some people. I totally get it. Me too. Really fascinating. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your classes. So you teach a couple classes. So what do you have coming up in the world of needle play and medical play? So I have a needle 101 class coming up at Dungeon East in Los Angeles. Um, all of the classes are in person now, which is so great. Um, that's coming up July 30th. Saturday from 1 to 3 p.m. And that's just a basic needle play class. I go over a lot of safety. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with needle play. So I go over a lot of safety facts, a lot of safety features, how to clean the skin, how to prep your surfaces, how to prep your bottom, how to get into that space where you're going to like start jamming needles into someone and what to do with the needles once they're in. I go over the anatomy of the body, where to put in needles, where not to put in needles, what might be an unsafe area to put needles in, in the body. And then I talk about proper disposal, getting rid of the needles, how to take the needles out and aftercare. So that's coming up July 30th. And then I have a medical play class on November 5th at Dungeon East as well. And the class is called Take It From the Nurse. <laughs> and it's going to sort of encompass scene setting, role playing, certain scenarios that you can do that are easy scenarios if you want to explore medical play. And I always include demos in all of my classes. So all of my classes will, I will always have a demo bottom with me. Same for the needle class. And so for the medical class, I will probably do, uh, I haven't decided what kind of skills I'm going to do for this class, but probably something like a medical exam, a speculum exam. I'm definitely going to use a medical stapler to do some stapling of body parts and just kind of generally getting into like, what's it like to be a top in this scene, uh, how should one dress as a top? What should your bottom wear? I like to put my bottoms for medical scenes in a patient gown. It makes them very vulnerable and it puts them in that very vulnerable bottom space where they actually do feel like a patient. So that's kind of fun for both of us. And yeah, and I just teach them like basic skills just so like the people who are playing in this medical scene feel like they're actually in a medical scenario. So I try to emphasize more like role play and definitely safety negotiation consent. Got it. And I'm assuming you're wearing scrubs and a mask and a hat and all the all the medical stuff to make yourself be very doctorish. Actually, I do not. Well, I wear scrubs at work, obviously, but I actually like to dress like a slutty nurse. <laughs> so I have a, a black nurse costume that I got online and I wear the very, it is so stereotypical and, you know, I'm probably not doing a great service for my profession by saying this, but I like to play up that sexy, busty nurse, big blonde nurse that comes into the room with the little, you know, black nursing hat and the, you know, 
cleavage and fishnet stockings and high heels. And that's actually how I like to do my medical play. That's actually how I will dress for my medical play class too. So if any of you want to see something like that, please come to my class. Very cool. Okay. How do people register for the class? They can register by going to Dungeon East. They can Google it. Los Angeles BDSM Classes, I believe is the website for those classes. They can also look up the proprietor and owner of Dungeon East. Her name is Mistress Justine Cross. They can look her up as well. She hosts most of my classes. And so any of those websites will be fine. She usually sends me a link so I can distribute it for the classes when they are open and available for tickets. And the classes are very small. There's only 20 spots for classes. And that's because, of course, we want to keep numbers down because of COVID. But we also want the people attending the class to have a very up close and personal experience with the instructor and with the skills that are being taught. And it's very hard to see in a class that has 50 people. You have to constantly stand up and come over to the side. And we don't want that. We want people to just have a really nice, up close, intimate view of, of what's being taught. Perfect. Okay. Do you have any socials you want to share to have people be able to find you? Sure. I'm uh, actually not on any social media except for FetLife. I got rid of all of my social media, which I'm very happy about. So on FetLife, I'm Dame Jez, D-O-M-M-E-J-E-Z. So if you want to reach out to me, you can find me there. That's awesome. awesome. Dame Jez, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. It's been really you. interesting. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. That's it for today. If you're interested in kinky relationship coaching online domination, or if you'd like to sponsor the pod to keep it going, please visit our Patreon website at Lady Petra Playground. You can reach me via email at ladypetraplayground at gmail.com. Our music is composed and performed by Roger Ferguson, who can be found at rogerfergusonmusic.com. Till next time, cheers! Cheers!